Y'all doing good? Great. I'm just going to apologize in advance for this. It's gnarly, isn't it? And you're going to hear it get infinitely worse over the course of the next two hours or so. Just kidding. It's not that long, but it is going to get worse. Uh, A couple of Journey Family Matters I want you to know about, hear about. Lots of you have been asking, uh, and I'm really grateful, what's happening with the girls, Brian? What's happening with the four girls you're adopting from the Democratic Republic of Congo? The short answer is nothing. Nothing is happening. Chairman of the President's Cabinet, he's kind of like the Vice President. He's a powerful man. His name is Mr. Siku, and he has our letter. He's had it since September sometime. Uh, Last week, uh, 10 days ago, he summoned us, Dan and I, for a meeting. That means we would have to get on a plane and go over there to have a meeting. And our team on the ground over there, adoption agency representatives and attorney, said, we think it's kind of dumb for you to fly over here for a meeting that we don't know what he's going to talk about in this meeting. We don't know what he's going to do in this meeting. And so let us go, and we'll have that meeting on your behalf. We said, that sounds like a good plan to us. They scheduled that meeting for Friday, day before yesterday. And so our attorney is all geared up to go to that meeting. Well, that was a national holiday. There was no, no meeting. So really glad we didn't go to celebrate the national holiday and not have a meeting with them. And uh, now the word is they'll reschedule maybe for sometime this week. And we're just praying and would ask you to continue to pray with us about all that, if you would. It's getting arduous and, well, God knows about all that. Second thing I want you to know about is uh, Bob Schwan, who's our pastor of missional mobilization and so Bob and Carmen have a son named Jaden he's in high school and uh, on Thursday Jaden skipped school and went skiing at Big Sky and Jaden is a big air dude I mean like he he does aerial stunts that you know make my head fall off well he pulled this amazing I saw the video of this thing he pulled this amazing front flip back flip thing I don't even know how to describe it and he hit his head really really hard on the snow and had a very, it was, it was scary. The call that Bob got from Big Sky was really scary. He's in an ambulance on his way to the hospital down here. And uh, really, really bad concussion. They get him in here and they take brain scans and so. And he's got bleeding on the brain, which is not a good deal. And uh, Friday afternoon, yeah, that was Thursday. And Friday afternoon, they're looking everything over saying like, yep, you're, you're all good. So by God's grace, Jaden is well and he was here last night worshiping his heart out, and uh, so praise God for all that. Just wanted you to know about that kind of a journey family thing. Give Bob a rub on the head. Praise God. Show of hands, if you will. How many of you have taken some steps to increase margin, physical margin, emotional margin, time margin over the past few weeks? You've taken some steps. Yeah. Great. Good job. Way to go. How many of you have felt an increase in margin because of one or more of the steps that you've taken? You've felt some, yeah, yeah, way to go. Cool, good job. The area of margin we're going to talk about today is financial margin, increasing or building financial margin. If we can get this one down, if you can take steps to build out some financial margin, if we cannot just be right up against the financial edge every week or every month, this one has a way of helping you feel margin in every other area of your life. Because you see, having some financial margin, some financial cushion, has a very real way of dialing down the pressure in our lives. And what we all know is that pressure eats margin for lunch. If there's high pressure in your life, 
then you'll have very low margin. If there's low pressure in your life, you'll likely have higher margin. And that's the aim, increasing amounts of margin. And this is kind of a young audience. And I know some people sometimes, when we talk about these sorts of things, say, you know, I'm too young to think or talk about financial margin. I'm only in high school. I'm only in college. And, you know, but you're not ever too young to think about building financial margin. In case you didn't know, we have lots of Dutch ancestry in our community, right? We've got these Dutch enclaves out to the west of us in particular. We, as a matter of fact, have lots of Dutch ancestry in our church even. And I got to tell you that the Dutch have it right, especially when it comes to the money deal, right? Did you know, for example, that the Dutch will not let their kids out of the crib until they can balance their checkbook? Are you just like, you don't graduate out of the crib until you can balance your check. They, they get it right. Our Dutch brothers and sisters have much to teach us in the area of financial margin. It doesn't matter whether you're old or young or somewhere in between. We can all and should all work to improve our financial margin no matter what our station in life. A guy named Dr. Richard Swenson, he's a medical doctor. He wrote a book called Margin that resorts this message in the whole series. And just in case you were wondering, it's really, really bleak when it comes to the financial margin of most Americans, did you know this? It's really, really bleak. Did you know, for example, that 43% of all Americans spend more money than they make every single year? 43% of Americans spend more than they make. Some stats indicate that that 43% is spending about 110% of their income each year. 110%, 110%, 110%. Did you know also that median household income in America is in decline? It's not increasing. It hasn't increased for some time. It's now less than about $50,000 a year. Median household income is below $50,000 a year in the United States. And yet, median household debt continues to rise. According to the Federal Reserve, median household debt in the United States of America is an alarming $75,600. That means half the population has less than that, half the population has more debt than that. 46% of all Americans carry a credit card balance from month to month to month to month. Overall, this will blow your mind. Americans right now, today, are carrying credit card debt in the amount of $798 billion of debt that Americans are serving on credit cards. Servicing $798 billion in credit card debt. That is staggering. Just by way of perspective, if you were alive when Jesus was born, and you spent $1 million every single day since Jesus' birth to right now, you still would not have been able to spend $798 billion. You would have had a whole bunch of fun, but you would not have spent $798 billion. There's 600 million active credit cards in the United States today. Households that carry credit card, revolving credit card debt, the average amount of that credit card debt is an astounding almost $16,000. One in seven Americans has more than 10 credit cards. The average credit card interest rate, you know what it is? Average credit card interest rate, 2.5%. 
13%. Average credit card interest rate. If you go to the credit card calculator on the Federal Reserve website, if you have a $10,000 credit card balance, if you're being charged an interest rate of 13%, if you make just the minimum payment each month, it will take you over 27 years to pay that $10,000 off, and you will end up paying $21,000. There's one credit card company out there, shockingly, whose interest rate that they charge their customers is 49.9%. 49, and you're like, well, who in the world would have a credit card with that company? You know how many customers that company has? 2.6 million customers paying 49.9%. It is bad. You get the picture? It's really, really bad. And much of the reason that Americans lack financial margin is because of our unparalleled love affair with consumption, right? With buying. Many, many people lack financial margin because they're caught up in buying things they really don't need with money they really don't have to impress people they really don't even like. And that is a surefire way to erode any and all financial margin. And for lots and lots of people, it's one little four-letter word that acts like a noose around people's neck, keeping them from being able to create financial margin. Do you know what that word is? No. Just for the record, this is the answer that John Oakland gave <laughs> for lack of financial margin. Wife, you should ask him about that sometime. Do you know what the real four-letter word is? Some people are getting up and leaving now. They're like, oh my gosh, what in the world? It's debt. It acts like a noose around our neck, preventing lots and lots of people from being able to build any financial margin. And the Apostle Paul, who's one of the greatest Christians, one of the greatest pastors to ever lead in the church, he wrote some about 2,000 years ago. He wrote something about God's view on your and my financial margin. And look what he says. Owe nothing to anyone. That's real clear, isn't it? Owe nothing to anyone. And there's an exception. Except for your obligation to love one another. Only owe each other love. Nothing else. Don't go into debt. Only owe each other love. Christian financial guru, a guy named Larry Burkett, unpacks that text at another layer. He says, look, God never ever prohibits borrowing, and he doesn't. He's right. But, Burkett says, he certainly does, God certainly does discourage borrowing. And he goes on to say, in fact, every biblical reference to debt is negative. Why is that? Well, because of the truth of this proverb. 22.7, just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. The one who borrows, the one who is in debt, becomes, what's another word for servant? Slave. It's exactly right. The one who's in debt becomes a slave to the one from whom they borrow. And this has profound spiritual effect. Especially when you stop and consider everything that God paid to free us 
Now just think about this. Go back in your story and think about your days before Christ when you were a slave to your sin, a slave to your shame, entangled in the quagmire that was your sin, your mess. And for lots of us, it's like, oh yeah, I remember those days really, really well. That was a mess, right? And then God, because he loves us so much, sent his son Jesus and Jesus stepped out of heaven was born a human being, a man, walked among us, lived among us for about 33 years, modeled for us what life his way looks like. And then, for the purposes of our chains and our bonds and our handcuffs, so that all of that could be broken, so that we could be set free, Jesus died this inexplicably cruel death for us on the cross. He took upon himself all of our sin all of our shame, all of our mess, all of humanities for that matter. And he took it to the grave. And three days later he rose, he came alive again. Victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He defeated it all. And when you think about it in those terms, about the incredibly steep price that God paid to set us free, it's not too difficult at all to imagine his preference that we never, ever, 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 ever again become slaves to anything except him, his righteousness. Why would we voluntarily go enslave ourselves in anything except him? And yeah, we do it by enslaving ourselves in debt, sure, but there's lots of other things we enslave ourselves in as well. Hurts, habits, and hang-ups that we find ourselves in day in and day out. And God says, wait, 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 time out. I paid an incredibly high price to set you free. Why would you go tie up to all that? And it's one thing to hear that. It's one thing to know that. And yet still 43% of people spend more than they make every single year. It's because like buying is our national pastime. Recreational shopping is just what some people do on the weekends. It's entertaining, certainly, but it actually, studies say, makes some people feel better. It acts, shopping does, a bit like an antidepressant of sorts until the bill comes. And easy to obtain credit plays right into our national obsession with buying. And credit is so seductive, isn't it? Have these pretty little innocent appearing plastic cards suck the life from financial margin and they become, they grow in power. As the hole gets deeper and deeper and deeper, they get more and more and more powerful and pretty quick people are looking up from this really deep hole of debt surrounded by possessions that they don't really own, overcommitted to the hilt, living paycheck to paycheck, no wiggle room, no margin. We go like, why, why, why do we play that game? The answer's not too difficult. It's because money is life's report card according to this world, right? Money is life's report card. So many people are so captivated by earning money, spending money, having money, they can think of little else. It comes to a conversation like this and some people's eyes glaze over and they go like, ah, I know, I just need to earn more money. I gotta put more money on the bottom line. But just as riches do not equate to righteousness, Neither does more money on the bottom line equate to financial margin. It's a bigger picture than that. 
and you read the Bible and you look at the example of Jesus Christ, it really could not be more clear. Wealth is not an objective of the Christian life. Wealth is not an objective of the Christian life. The Bible's really clear, as a matter of fact. When you come into money along life's path, it doesn't matter how you come into it, whether it's through your work, through inheritance, through winning the lottery, through finding it alongside the road in a paper bag, it doesn't matter. The Bible says when you come into money, you do one of three things with it. You turn and walk away from it. The other direction, you're like, whoa, really? Or you pick it up and you give it away. You're like, whoa. Or if needed, you use it for the necessities of daily living. God's just that clear about the money deal. When you come into money, it doesn't matter how. You turn and walk in the other direction. You pick it up, you give it away. Or you use it if needed for the necessities of daily living. God says any other interaction besides those or a combination of those three risks adverse spiritual consequences. And God says you don't want to pay that price. And God talks that frankly, that candidly about money because he knows how dangerous it can be. And God's not ever saying that we're not supposed to have any money. God's not saying that we're supposed to live in poverty. He is saying, however, look, you gotta do this money thing well because the stakes are so high. Jesus said it this way one time, Matthew chapter six. Do not store up treasures here on earth. Do not try to accumulate the biggest pile you possibly can. Why? Because moths eat that stuff, rust destroys that stuff, thieves break in and steal that stuff. Instead, he says, store your treasures in heaven. Moths and rust cannot destroy it there. Thieves do not break in and steal it there. Now look what he says. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Money is so powerful, it acts just like a magnet, drawing our heart directly to wherever we've invested the money that God's entrusted to our care. Which means Jesus is saying, be really, really careful about where you put your money. Because it's this irrevocable spiritual truth that our heart is gonna be in that very same place. The Apostle Paul says this time in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse nine, check this out. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. That is an incredibly bleak sentence, isn't it? People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is not intrinsically evil. It's the love of money that is the root of evil. And some people, some people who crave Money have wandered from, they've wandered away. They've left the faith because they're just craving money. They're just pursuing money. And when they've done that, they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. It is a sad, tragic life. But you, Timothy, and you can substitute your name here. Sub your name in there. But you are a man or woman of God. So run from all these evil things. Run from craving money. Pursue righteousness 
and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Pursue God, in essence, and fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. God says it again and again quite explicitly, distrust money. It's not evil, but the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. And God says, look, you can do this well. You can do this right with wisdom and with discipline. Money can glorify God. Money can bless people, which is what God intends for money to be used for. But in order for us to use money the way God intends us to use it, we've got to have some wiggle room. We've got to have some financial margin. And so here's some steps to building financial margin. The first one is this. We just start by traveling in the right direction. Which means really that we've got to settle the question of whether or not the financial margin we're desirous of is honoring of God. It really becomes a lordship question. Is Jesus the boss? Because it might be really, really easy for me to say, well, you know, I think financial margin that would make me comfortable and that would be sufficient for me and my family would be like $100,000. In case you're wondering, I'm a long, long way from a savings account with $100,000 in it. But it's more than just a number. It really comes down to an issue of who's the boss of my life. Is it me or is it Jesus? Because you see, while I might be really comfortable having a savings account with 100 grand in it, Restoring or building financial margin for the purpose of pride or wealth or meeting my security needs in a way that circumvents my heavenly father is not a move in the right direction, wrong direction. It's the wrong direction. What is the right direction, however, is building financial margin that honors God, which is not just a dollar and cents equation. Rather, it starts with putting first things First, Jesus, are you the boss of my life? Do you call the shots in my life? And then you ask him the question, how much margin should I have? And does that margin, will that margin honor you? Second thing we gotta do to have financial margins, we gotta break money's power over our lives. And you know how you do that? Is you give it away. Money is incredibly powerful. It's so powerful, according to Jesus, that money actually competes head-to-head with God. Let that hit you. Money competes head-to-head with God, which is why in the New Testament, Jesus says, you gotta choose. Is it me or is it money? Because money, see, isn't just any little power. It's not just any small G, God. Money directly opposes God, which means that one of the first steps in our spiritual journey must be to understand the power of money, confront the power of money, and with God's help, demolish the power of money in our lives. And the way you break money's hold over your life is to give it away. You plow it back into God's work here on earth. And when you do that, you neutralize its power over your life. Spend any time at all with people who are incredibly generous with the money that God's entrusted to their care and you just see that truth bear out again and again and again. They talk very candidly and very openly that money is not an idol to them. It doesn't hold undue influence over them. It doesn't own them. To them, it's just money. It's another tool to be used by God for his 
purposes. If you want to build financial margin in your life, you've got to break money's hold over you by choosing to give, to be generous. Number three, to build financial margin, you've got to live counterculturally. So once you've started in the right direction, once money doesn't have any hold over your life, the next battle, and it is a battle we must wage, is to break the culture's power over us when it comes to money and stuff and things. Because you see, the world out there is not just a benign force when it comes to this stuff. Rather, it's a lot like a dictator telling us how much and what kind of education we gotta have, what kind of job and career we better pursue, what kind of house, car, and clothes that we ought to buy, who's beautiful and who isn't beautiful. And it is exceedingly rare in this world to meet people who are not controlled by the culture. And yet, get this, if the culture continues to control us when it comes to money and stuff and things, we will not ever be able to achieve God-honoring financial margin. We gotta wrestle the control from the world with God's help, orienting our lives in God's direction and journey. We gotta do that together. We're a family. We gotta do that together. We gotta be loving and supporting each other in making quite countercultural decisions where and when God calls the shots for us, not the culture, we answer to God, not anybody else. If you wanna build financial margin, you'll laugh when you see this, but you gotta live within your harvest. Some of you are like, duh, Brian. Well, 43% of Americans spend more than they make every single year. You gotta live within your harvest. Make do with what you have. Accept what you have. And that's countercultural. That's not popular. It communicates that you have boundaries and that you're willing to live within them. Maybe for you today, the simple application of this whole message is this statement. An agreement you make with God, with your spouse, with your family. I will not spend more than I make. Stake in the ground. I will not spend more than I make. I'm choosing to live within my harvest. You want to grow your financial margin? You got to have a really frank and candid conversation with God about wants and needs. You want to increase your financial margin? You'll have to redefine wants and needs, not according to the world's standards, not according to the advertiser's standards, but according to God's standards. What do I really need? What do I really need? And it doesn't mean God is not generous. God often gives us what we want so we don't have to try to trick God into, you know, you need carpet in your house and so, you know, you, you talk about that being a need. I go, no, sometimes God gives us what we want. But you have to sort that with him. You want to grow financial margin? You got to decrease spending. Number six, decrease spending. Turn the spending knobs down. And it's easy to do that in the short term, right? We're not going to eat out this week. All right, created a little financial margin. But short-term discipline is pretty easy. Try saying, we're not gonna eat out for the next five years. Turn those spending knobs down. And the margin it creates is dramatic. You might save 100 bucks by not eating out this week, but over five years, you might save $10,000. Number seven, increase your income. When it increase financial margin, increase your income. Now you gotta be careful with this one though because we're also talking about increasing time margin, right? So there's these trade-offs that you'll have to be willing or not willing 
to make. How does increasing financial margin clash with increasing time margin? Again, you'll have to sort that with the Lord. Number eight, increase your savings. Is it $1,000? Is it $50,000? Is it $100,000? And no matter what it is, if God asks you to give it, would you? Whose is it? Is it yours or is it his? And so the issue really isn't so much about saving as am I hoarding here? Scripture talks again and again and again about savings being wise, prudent, a healthy component of financial margin. However, the scripture speaks quite sternly about hoarding. Are you hoarding? Number nine, we're gonna click through these. Build a budget and live by it. Number 10, cut up your credit cards. Do that. Number 11, resist impulses. This becomes especially important when you go to a place called Costco. (laughs) Right? Where they put things on pallets and make them look so enticing. Oh my gosh, bulk iPods on a pallet. I'll take five. And then they do this other little thing like samples, right? How many times have you gone home with a 10 pound bag of something that you never would have gone home with if you hadn't sampled it? Like 10 pounds of chicken wings, good heavens. Resist impulses. The Costco people get grumpy when I talk like that, but we're on to them. This is... <laughs> this is really countercultural. I talked about five years ago, I, I basically preached a whole sermon about this topic right here, and people's eyes glaze. I'll never forget this as long as I live. It was like, Hopkins, you are from Mars. Share, lend, borrow, trade, I'd add on there too. Share, lend, borrow, trade. Part of the reason we Americans have a love affair with shopping and consumerism is because we think that we must personally own every single thing that we ever use, right? But that is not at all the case. What if we developed a new depreciation of things and a new appreciation of people? Things are to be used. People are to be served, Right? Not allowing someone to use something that we own places more importance on the thing than on the person. And you know what that does? That dishonors God, frankly. Check, check this out. God feels our neighbors are so valuable that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for them. But yet some of us, we think so little of our neighbors that we will not let them use our lawnmower. Right? That doesn't compute does it? What if we loaned out our stuff? I don't have a lot of stuff, but if you ask me to borrow almost anything I have, you're welcome to it. You're absolutely welcome to it. One of the really fun things, we have this 15 passenger van. We hardly ever use it because it's sort of cumbersome. And honestly, our family hardly ever goes to the same place at the same time. We're often convening. You know, we got people driving all over the place. We're Americans, right? Everybody has a car. And so we got this van and it sits out here a lot. Well, the wrestling community around has heard that we have this van and we're willing to loan it out. And so these coaches who I hardly even know often call me and say, hey, can I use this van? And it's a little nerve wracking, right? To borrow someone else's car, right? Because we're not talking about borrowing a ladder or something. We're talking about borrowing, a, a, it's a car, right? We kind of treasure our cars in America. And so these guys call me up and they sort of nervously tiptoe into the conversation like, hey, I hear you have this van. And, and I just help them out. I'm just like, do you want to borrow it? And they're like, really? 
yeah, really, keys in the gas tank out there, you can borrow it any time. I shouldn't have just said that. <laughs> I trust you. I trust, and they're like, now, you know, Brian, we're going to put like 14, 11-year-olds, and they stink, and it's going to be, yeah, absolutely. We'll change the oil, Brian, we'll, I, I don't care. It's God's van. Take good care of it, please. I'll take good care of it, please. But it's God's van. It's not, it's not mine. It's his. And anytime we're willing to loan out our stuff, that means that someone else won't have to buy similar stuff. They'll have more left over to use as financial margin and to be generous with. Number 13, fast. Now, usually we think about fasting in terms of food only. But check this out. What if we fasted from shopping for a season? That'll make the shop owners in town happy. Really. What if we fasted from shopping for a season? What if we used what we had in the refrigerator and the freezer? What if we got by on what we already have? Just think about how your finances might be resuscitated by a transfusion of margin because you didn't shop for the next two weeks. What would that be like? Number 14, we'll finish with this one. This is where it all lands. We put God's kingdom first. We put God's kingdom first. Jesus did not pull any punches when he said in Matthew chapter six, verse 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else, above financial margin, above time margin, above emotional margin, above physical margin. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. Pursue him. Be about his kingdom. Be about his priorities. And when you are, and if you are, check it out. He will give you everything you need. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. This is all about honoring God. This is all about God first in our hearts, in our lives, and everything we have being made available for him, for his kingdom purposes. And it should be really, really simple for us. And I know it's not, but it should be really, really simple for us because it's not ours anyway. It's all God's. All the money's his. All the time is his. Even our bodies are his. We belong to him. And he says, seek first my kingdom. Live righteously. And everything you need, you'll have it. I'll take care of you. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would and I just invite you to think on these things with the Lord. Maybe you'd ask him those couple of questions. God, what is it that you're saying to me today? And what is it that you want me to do about that? God, what are you saying to me and what do you want me to do about that?
God, our prayer is that we would seek your kingdom above everything else. And that we would live righteously. And God, that we would be able to trust that you're going to give us everything we need. 